our passage. Again, if you're visiting, special welcome to you. If this is your first time, we never quite know uh, until we ask how somebody ends up here, but we're glad that you're here and want to say welcome to you. We, uh, and if you are visiting, we're studying through a book of the New Testament called First Peter. It's written by the Apostle Peter. He's one of those 12 apostles that you meet in the Gospels. <clears throat> this is the first of two letters he has in the New Testament. And we're, uh, we're looking at this book, this letter, through the winter and the spring. So we're still really in the first half of this study. But we're beginning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can just uh, you can follow the text right there in the, um, in the bulletin. Before the coming of Jesus, the great salvation moment in the Bible is the exodus. Uh, in other words, prior to God saving sinners through Jesus' work on the cross, the Bible's, the Bible's kind of high watermark of saving action <clears throat> is God rescuing His people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them out and bringing them to Mount Sinai to, in, in a sense, set the terms, set the terms for what they would look like as a people, what He expected of them. Um, how they would be different from the other nations. What, what would it look like to go into a promised land? They hadn't had any land. They'd been in bondage, and then they're, they're receiving this in the wilderness where they're going to be for the next four decades. But, but setting the terms. And there's language that before God gives any rules, before He gives any laws, Mount Sinai is so identified with law for, for good reason. But before God gives any law, he, he says some things specifically to the nation of Israel that are incredibly weighty. I'm going to read them in just a moment. And they're things that He says about Israel that He, he doesn't and will not say about any other nation. That He describes them in terms that He, that he would never uh, describe the Egyptians or the Hittites or the Philistines in those terms. But He says, this is true of you, my people. And here, here's the amazing thing that I hope we're going to see together in this text. The Apostle Peter, who, just to remind you again, and if you're visiting, this may be new to you, the Apostle Peter had a tough time with this whole thing of, after Jesus, non-Jewish people being God's people. Non-Jewish people, i.e. Gentiles, being regarded as just as much the people of God as anybody else, just as much saved and forgiven by the Messiah as anybody else. That was tough on him. And if you want proof that God can change people, you're about to hear the Apostle Peter, for whom that was so hard, addressing Gentiles in modern-day Turkey with names that used to only be used of the nation of Israel. He takes these special, precious kind of love names from God for His people and applies them to decidedly non-Israelite people. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Speaking about Jesus, he writes, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Father, when we renovated this room and this building, we wondered what it would be like to ever see it full. And it is. And it humbles us. And in many ways, we don't know what to do with it. But we know that we need to hear you. We of all people need to hear you. So please enable us to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a campus minister, uh, before I moved to Greenville, had an interesting exchange with a student one day. Young guy, uh, fairly new Christian, and on the zeal meter, he was like redlining, just zeal to the peg, which is great, and we don't ever want to rain on that or, or squelch that. In his zeal for wanting the Bible, which really he was just, just soaking up in a way that was new to him, he never had before, in his zeal to make it very personal, uh, personal and applicable to his life, he had started, this took some time, he started going through... And every time there was a promise or an exhortation or some description of what God was doing for His people, He had struck out a plural and made it singular. All the plurals, he had, you know, pl plural pronouns had become I or me or my. And I remember when He told me that, I felt torn because on the one hand, again, you don't want to rain on somebody's parade or pop their balloon. You don't want to squelch their zeal. But here's what that leaves you with. Like, one of the most famous verses in the Bible is John 3.16. All right. After he got through with it, you've got, instead of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It said, for God so loved me that he gave his one and only Son that if I believe in him, I won't perish, but I'll have everlasting life, which is true. 
But in some sense, what he had done, he had actually almost canonized, ratified the way a lot of us treat spirituality. Uh, he, there's a, there's a um, theologian or historian named Robert Lovelace, excuse me, Richard Lovelace, and he gave this description. He said, the way that modern Christianity, and actually a lot of American Christianity, we do the individualism thing very naturally. That, that's why when we see things in the Middle East that are very collective, um, you know, collective retaliation, it doesn't register with us when people think collectively, corporately, because we think very individually. You know, if you're mad at me, take it up with me. Don't blow up people like me. Well, here's what Richard Lovelace says. He says, in this, in this very individualistic model of the Christian life, the individual believer is connected to the source of grace, you know, God, like a diver who draws his air supply from the surface through a hose. He is essentially a self-contained system cut off from the other divers working around him. Now, do you get the picture? They're all submerged. They're all underwater. All these different divers... You know, they, they have to have outside supply of air, but they all have individual hoses going to the source. It says, if their air supply is cut off, this does not damage him, nor can he share with them the air that he receives. The situation would be no different if he were working alone a hundred miles away. And that's very perceptive. That the, often the way we do Christianity is, what is this doing for me? And the way that we frame it is, is this meeting my needs? And, you know, th this group of people or this little small group of people or this one other person, you're interesting to me and you're beneficial to me and you're important to me in as much as I feel the benefit of you. But if I don't feel the benefit of you, then you're not beneficial. And that is absolutely at odds both with the Old and the New Testament. Uh, I said a second ago that I wanted to read just a short passage about when God delivered the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea, rescues them from their enemies, and brings them to Mount Sinai. It was very frightening, but in the, in the midst of this very frightening scene, listen to how He talks to them. If you want the fear of God, uh, the majesty of God, the, the, how God can be frightening, coupled with... His tenderness, here it is, Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning, flashes, fire. And he says to the Israelites, you shall be my treasured possession. And why would you treasure people who for the rest of their history are stiff-necked? I don't mean just the Jewish people, I mean God's people, period who are stiff-necked, who are stubborn, who are set in our ways. Why would he say, oh, my, my, my jewels, my treasure, my wealth. This is God. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, th that has to be in Peter's mind, when he's writing these words, he takes those exact terms and ones that are used elsewhere in the Old Testament that are only used about Israel, and he applies them to a group of Gentiles to say, look guys, this is what you are. 
He doesn't say rise to the occasion of being a kingdom of priests or rise to the occasion of being a chosen race. He just states it that that's what you are. What does that mean for us? There's so much here, theologically, biblically, very rich. I want to look at two things about what, what is the church, both all over the world and even a, a local expression of it, like downtown Presbyterian. What is the church? It is a temple and it is a people. I just want to look at those two things. It's a temple and a people. Now, the word temple doesn't really appear in this text. Why are we saying temple? Well, what is a temple? A temple is a building where a god is worshipped. And typically the view is that the god actually lives in the building in a way that he doesn't live anywhere else. That He's the most localized in this building. He lives there. It's his house. There's service that goes on there, typically with priests or some kind of priestly figures. It's a place of sacrifices. It's a place of worship. All right. The word temple doesn't show up in this text, but every one of those other elements does. And Peter says this. He says, God still has a temple. But he's not talking about the temple that's on the mount in Jerusalem, which gets a lot of attention both from Jews and from some Christians. He says, no, 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 no. That temple is not where the action is anymore. God does still have a temple, and He quite literally lives in it. And even though he's everywhere, even though the universe can't contain him in this unique, special way, in the same way he lived in the tabernacle in the temple, he resides in this temple, and the temple is the church. And what that means is this, is that every individual Christian is like a building block, is like a stone, a living stone. And all these living stones are the house. All right, now so what? I don't know if I've ever pointed this out in a sermon before, but I want to show you about something about this building when we renovated it. Do you see to the left of the piano, this is going to be harder for you, but maybe notice it on the way out. Do you see that patch of bricks that are different colored than the other bricks? All right, this building, which was sort of a warehousey building, that used to be an entrance. And we decided we didn't want people walking in and out right behind the piano during worship, a tad distracting. So we, we took out that entrance and we replaced it with bricks. Now, I knew that part was coming when this renovation was going on. This was sometime in 2007, 2008. But I guess in, in my sort of perfectionistic way, I thought that when the bricks were put in, they would just seamlessly match all the other bricks. And I remember when I walked in, I'll be honest, I I was miffed. I was miffed. I thought, they don't look like the... uh, I mean, we've already got the places where they did the windows before we got in the building, and everybody's staring at those already. But now we've added to it with these different bricks when we didn't have... And I didn't like it. And I tell you, over time, I have grown to love these bricks. Uh, I've accepted them into my heart, you might say. Uh, I've repented of my brick snobbery, or however you, however you want to say it. And you, I mean, you think about it, it, it is kind of wonderful that those bricks, that could have ended up anywhere. They could have been like, they could have made some sort of like annex facility for a water treatment plant, or who knows what. But they, uh, they're here. They're here, and so much so 
that, and I bend over backwards when I talk about this building, not to call it the church. Please, and please do that. Help me with that. Don't call the building the church. The people are the church. But the building gets so identified with the people that it just almost gets inescapable that we start calling the building the church. So we have started calling those bricks the church. And that is, in a sense, a picture of 1 Peter 2. In a way, I was Peter. I can't, you know, if those are the Gentiles and the original bricks are Israel, I kind of came in and went, I don't like that. It looks different. I want it uniform. No, not the plan. Not the plan. And again, if you want proof that God can change people, God changes Peter by His grace to be able to... He calls these guys beloved. Man, he wouldn't have done that before. He calls them these special Israelite names and says, you are living stones in the spiritual house in which God resides, in which these sacrifices take place. Okay, but again, so what? Well, think about this. If we removed right now those bricks, it would, it would compromise the stability of this wall. It would compromise the stability at that point, really, of this entire section of the building if you took those out. They are now so built into the structure. Peter says that is how Christians are connected. Again, you might say that's a cool image, but so what? Here's the so what. Here's my question. In us figuring out how to flesh out the life of the church, we're not going to do it perfectly. And I'm under no illusion that the way we do worship or the way that we do small groups or some conversation that two of our people are having together is just the way to do it. We, We don't think we're the gold standard. But we're wrestling with how do you flesh out being the church? And what it looks like for us are things like besides just living out there in society, it's coming together in what we're doing right now. It's community groups that meet in homes. It's one-on-one time with each other, sharing our lives. And my question for us is, do you give to that endeavor what is left over after you have made your plans? Or do we plan around that endeavor? Do we plan with that endeavor as part of what we are about? I mean, this is... Here's the reality. There are are members of downtown Presbyterian that if you faded into the night, and I I say this with no happiness, I assure you, if you faded into the night and never came back, it would go largely unnoticed except by two or three people. And there are some members that if they were to leave, it would, it would sort of rattle the entire life of our church. And, you know, you could look at that and say, well, you know, there's some people, they're just kind of superstars. They're up front a lot. That has nothing to do with ever standing up here. But, but it is the exercise of love and service to one another and building one another into, into each other's lives. And what that looks like is this, is let's say with community groups. Again, I'm not just wanting to be a slave driver that you have to do it that way. But, but those are our small groups. And here's what that means. There are going to be nights where you might feel like going to community group, especially if you're eating good stuff that night. But there may be nights where you are tired and you have had it and you are introverted like me 
and you are maxed out with people, and there is no level of excellent, sweet fellowship that could be better in your mind right now than being left alone. Or it may be that there is someone there, and they're just difficult to deal with, and you're feeling like, if they're going to be there, I just don't know. And they're probably going to be there. Now, two things. Number one, that's how other people feel about you too sometimes. And certainly me, <laughs> lest, lest that go unsaid. Um, but what, here's, here's the wrong thinking, is, is essentially we have said, I'm, I'm gonna look, there's going to be a diminished me if I have to go and give more of me out. I'm so tired, I'm so spent, I'm going to lose some of me if, if, I have to, if I have to expend more of me with this group of people that are not like my natural best friends. I'd actually rather go out to dinner tonight with a real best friend that I already have. C.S. Lewis, um, he lost a very, very close friend of his named Charles Williams. He actually called Charles his friend of friends. His friend of friends. He was a writer. Um, And in, in Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he describes what he observed after Charles died. He says, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Because Charles is gone. We possess each friend, not less, but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. Believe me when I say, I know what it is to walk into a Christian gathering and to feel like, you know what would be the richest, most beneficial thing for me right now is to be left alone. And there are seasons of life where you might need that in small doses, but that is individualism. It is not being the temple that we are. He doesn't say, rise to the occasion of being a temple. He says, you are. And you will actually have less of you and less of one another as you go to your own corners. There's something about coming together and living. And this is not just meetings together. It is sharing our money with each other. It is helping one another with our children, whether you have children of your own or not. It is weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's the real deal. That is being the temple. Now, there's another aspect of of a temple here. It's not just the building, but it's what goes on inside the temple. And that's what? Priests do their thing. There's a priesthood. And sometimes, I may have done it myself, preachers can talk about the priesthood as if this thing of uh, the priesthood of all believers is something that started in the New Testament. Or that it's something that we just became aware of in the Protestant Reformation At Mount Sinai, that's as Old Testament as you get, God says to all those Israelites, you 
are a kingdom of priests. And what does that mean? Because there, there was a separate priesthood. All those people couldn't walk into the tabernacle or the temple the way a Levite could. What, what does that mean that you're a whole kingdom of priests? And the simplest way I know to say it is this. What do priests do? Priests are sinners who go to bat for fellow sinners with God and serve them. That's what, And they're just as much sinners as the people they represent that they go to bat for. But they go to bat for fellow sinners before God and serve their fellow sinners. Oh, that we had more time to unpack that. But, but, but here's what that means. And I'm going to be, if you're visiting, I don't want you to feel excluded by this, but I just, I want to be particular. If you are a member of downtown Presbyterian Church and you hear about the trial or the loss that someone else who's a member of our church is experiencing, do not think that because you don't have a relationship with that person that we are unaffected. And before we talk anything about outreach, being priests to the world, we are priests when we get on our knees and pray for a church member whose name I just learned, but I found out that she had a miscarriage. Or he is depressed. Or they have looked and looked and looked and they cannot find a job. Or their family situation is just in meltdown. I don't know them, the pain of that, I don't feel it in my experience, but we show ourselves to be priests when we get on our knees and beg God to work. And when we do that, that is not some high echelon of spirituality, that's who we are. It's doing what we are already. Second thing, briefly, we're a temple and we're a people. Look in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That, that is just straight out of Exodus 19. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What does that mean? Once you were not a people. That's a weird thing to say to a group of people. Think about it this way. The word peoples is all through the, the Old Testament. In fact, God says that on Mount Sinai. You're going to be different than all the other peoples of the earth. The word peoples is a weird word. Because people is already plural. But then there's an S at the end of it. It's kind of like how Gollum talks. You know? Like he doesn't... Like the plural of hobbit should be hobbits, but he'll say hobbitses. Or, you know, orcses. Why do we need to say peoples? And, and here's what the scriptures are getting at. There are all these people groups. And maybe, you know, in, because of that geography or that background or those cultural norms, there is sort of a people there, but it doesn't transfer. And so you've got all these different peoples. And the burden of the Psalms, I mean, that, that word peoples is over a hundred times in the Psalms, is to say, let all the peoples praise you. And how would that happen? 
It would happen if the peoples became the people. Who are the people? It's those on whom God has had mercy and made them to be His own, His treasured possession, His chosen race. And think about this. Peter is writing... You get this in the the first or second verse. He's writing peoples that live in this big geographic area. He says, once you were not a people. And when they heard that, they might have thought, well, now who are you to say that? We have this long background here. We've got our traditions, our ways. We have a very strong sense of identity here. We have our stories. We have our songs. Who are you to say that we're not a people? And what is he saying? Yeah, you are in Cappadocia. But the Cappadocians aren't Galatians. And the Galatians feel that way about being Galatians, but they don't feel that in Cappadocia. But he says this, hey, something has happened. Where now your sense of being a people, it transfers. And this letter of mine that we now call First Peter is going all through modern-day Turkey, all around Asia Minor. Everybody that reads that is able to say, we are living stones in the same building. We are in the same order of priesthood. We're a house in which God lives. You are my brother and you are my sister. So much so that Peter, who had a bent against the Gentiles, could say, Beloved, my brothers, my sisters, he loves them. Unbelievable. And guys, there is a part of this text that I, that's the part you don't want to talk about. Verses 7 and 8. It speaks about honor and it speaks about contrast. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Does Peter mean what he seems to be saying? He seems to be saying, if you believe, you're honored there will be those who don't believe and they will not be honored. In fact, they're moving toward destruction and dishonor and that's what they were destined for. It sounds like he is saying that God is sovereign over these recipients' salvation, but He's just as sovereign over some people not being saved and being destined for destruction. And believe me when I say that everything in my flesh wants to say, oh, it doesn't mean that. But it is the clear language of the text. It's the clear language of a lot of texts. Go back to Mount Sinai when God says, you're my treasured possession. You're my chosen race. You're a kingdom of priests. I love you. I've brought you out here. I'm going to make you different than every other nation. He only says it to one nation. Why do they get that honor? Why do the recipients of this letter get that honor? I mean, if you're here and you're feeling indignation, like, why is it that one group would be honored and one would not be honored? Why would one group be honored and one group move toward destruction? Is it because one group is better than the other? Why are they a people? Why are these people a people? Once you were not a people, now you are a people. But then what's the rest of verse 10? Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. 
here's the alternative, friends. Either God made sinners like us potentially savable by Jesus, but now we'll just have to see how this lands with you. And if we take that approach, here's what that means. That if you are saved, then it must have been something about you that had the good sense to make that decision. Well, maybe I was just inclined that way. Who inclined you? Why were you inclined and someone else was disinclined? It is a hard truth to say that God is sovereign over salvation and destruction, but the alternative is more sinister. That there was something about me that He saw when the Scriptures are saying, if we are the people of God, it is only His mercy. Well, where does that leave us? Well, quickly, it means that we're supposed to be different. It means that we're supposed to be different. Um, Verse 11 says, give something up, and verse 12 says, do something. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This would be a great thing to discuss in community groups, but to be the people of God and to be distinct means that every one of us has things from which we'll have to abstain, that we'll have to give up. And it's going to be different for different people. I I would encourage you to think about this. What do you tend to overreact to? For instance, thinking about Greenville, maybe you want to show everybody that you're not a fundamentalist. You might come from that background or you might know, I don't come from that background and I don't want to be confused with coming from that background. So you're going to show everybody that you're not a fundamentalist by overreacting with what you enjoy, with what you ingest, with where you spend time. Peter later in this letter is going to say, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Be free. You are free. Don't use it as a cover-up. Okay? Great opportunity for discussion in community groups. Give up, but then do what? Verse 12 says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning non-Christians, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are not just called to be different by what we don't do. Most people don't care what you don't do. It's like saying, I never, ever kill people on Main Street with a machine gun, ever. I never do it. That's great. That's weird that you would say that, but that's good. Just keep doing that. We'd like to look at some other areas where you've done some things and not just the absence of that. A million applications, but note that Peter says it's got to be something that the Gentiles can see. You know, if I just pray for my coworker, if I just pray for my neighbor, it's better than nothing. And they already see a lot of kind of southern niceness, maybe. But do they see love? Do they see genuine interest? Do they see someone who can sustain a conversation without looking away at their iPhone? Because they actually care. So that the person who thinks that you are holier than thou is actually melted over time to the point where they could glorify God because look at how you've treated me. Let me end with this. Um... What about the person here who's not a Christian 
and thinks, I, 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 th- this is also new to me. I don't know what to do with this. I, I would just point your attention to verse 6. God says, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. It says twice how chosen and precious Jesus is. Not only to us, but to God. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Let those words ring in your ears. That if you're sitting here and you're thinking, good grief, it is weird enough that I'm in a worship service, but if I became a Christian, ugh, and then join a church, ugh, I don't know how my friends would respond to me. Believe me, believe me, there'll be some bumps. I mean, if people rejected the cornerstone, what will they do with one of the little stones? But you will not be put to shame. What if you're here and you're a Christian, but I don't want relationships with other people. I want a sermon here and there in a Christian book, and then I want to be left alone. Honestly. I don't want deep connections with people. I would just say this to you. The first verse we looked at, it says, as you come to Him, as you come to Jesus... You know, sometimes we talk about having a come-to-Jesus meeting with somebody, like highly confrontational. We had a come-to-Jesus meeting. We probably overused that. Peter doesn't say, come to Jesus. He says, as, you, as you're coming to a living stone. You know what's great about that? What was Peter's name? Simon. Or Simeon. And one day Jesus said, nope, your name is Peter. And on this rock I'll build my church. And then a few verses later, Peter's trying to stop him from doing the thing that saved all Christians. And Jesus is calling him Satan. Great start (laughs) to being the rock. Great beginning to living out your name. And it's beautiful that that's there. Pretty good indicator that they're telling the truth. Eyewitness accounts. But Peter has so much credibility to look at you and go, look, yeah, my name is Rock, great. Here's what you need to do. You need to go to the living stone. As far as Peter's ability to help you, what am I? I'm an apostle. I can give you the good news. But as far as the foundation, I'm like a rock you find in gravel. A rock you can pick up and throw. He is like Caesar's head. Impervious. Unchangeable. You can go to Him, chosen and precious, and He not only can forgive you, but change you. He can change you so that somebody that hated Gentiles, or at least strongly disliked them, could call them His beloved, His brothers, His sisters, fellow strangers, fellow exiles. Let's pray that we will not have church, please, please, but be the church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, make these things take real expression in our lives. Not for our name's sake, but for your name's sake. Father, we don't want to have church, and yet we want in many ways to be left alone. Cause us to be the church with our time and our money, our homes, our cars, our children, everything, for your glory.
as your priests. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.